Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We just recorded a fairly long episode about bats called The Wild World of Bats. And hopefully you've, you've listened to that one before you listen to this one. Not that you have to, but I think that's a preferred listening order. Uh, but uh, but it, but in that podcast, we talked about a lot about the ways of bats and the way the ways that they've uh, come to own the night, um, how they uh, they live in this this different realm of the senses. Um, and we also mentioned a, a philosophical paper by one Thomas Nagel, uh, and we read a quote from that. But his whole point is that we as humans have, are perhaps incapable of understanding the viewpoints of other species, be it a, be it a dog, a cat. Uh, a bat or you know an alien uh, being of some sort uh, on another planet we just can't we can't really put ourselves in their mind because we're not privy to um, all of the uh, experiences that make them what they are mm-hmm. and uh, and with the bat we see that especially in its echolocation and its use of, of song basically its use of song its use of sound to see the world around it and experience it and interact with it. Yeah, because remember, this is really the aspect of bats that make bats successful, really, if you look at yes. it. Of course, the flying is important, but the ability to have this sort of song um, is what makes this, uh, as what Dr. George Pollock says, a rich sensory exotica. Yes. And I love that because we're really going to try to delve into that today. Like, what does it mean to be a creature who depends on echolocation, and how does it change your understanding of the physical world? Yeah. So just to, to briefly mention echolocation again, it, think radar, think sonar. The, the, the bat sends out a signal, uh, a, a sound signal, goes out in waves. Mm-hmm. It hits something, it bounces back. And this something may be the wall of a canyon, which we can relate to in an echo. If we're standing in a canyon, we, we hear our sound uh, flow out from us and mm-hmm. return to us. But then with the bat, we're also talking about uh, the ability to bounce off of very small objects, moving objects, such as a moth uh, moving around in the night that would make a t- tasty snack, uh, as well as the movements of, of other creatures and other things in the night. Um, a lot of, in most cases, the echolocation sound is an extremely high-pitched noise, mm-hmm. uh, so high that it's beyond human hearing. But uh, their vocal communication is is again, it is it is it's rich. It's not just uh, oh, bat squawk at this, squawk at that, and squawk at this other thing and see what happens. Uh, you see a vast uh, array of squeaks and squawks and babbles. Uh, in in many cases, we're talking about elaborate songs that they're basic. They're to, to get a little poetic about it. They're they're sort of singing the world around them into existence. Yeah, and it is finely tuned, so they can, of course, adjust the pitch, the frequency, all different aspects of, of, of what they're emitting in order to get the right kind of data back that they want. And also, when you think about this, um, you know, the, the sort of data that it's hitting like a moth, it's not just a moth. It's every single thing that is in mm-hmm. that vicinity that's coming back that it now has to make sense of. Um, they are not only detecting uh, detecting and hunting objects, uh, but they are forming three-dimensional images of these objects on the basis of sound. Yeah, and like it's all coming together in their mind in a way yeah. that we, we really can't quite fathom. Yeah, so so they know where they are in space. Uh, they know the verticality of this object or thing. They know the distance. And they can see, really, they can see with their ears flying at speeds of 40 miles an hour while doing this. Yeah. And, I mean, I love the idea that, that, they, they, that it even has a sense of grammar and syntax. That's just amazing to even try and 
wrap your head around. Um, it, now, it's worth noting that despite the, the, the saying, blind as a bat, bats are not blind. Uh, most bats uh, have sight. Sometimes the sight is a little... Uh, Certainly less developed of their senses, mm-hmm. but uh, but in some in many cases they have very acute uh, eyesight. So it's not that they are hearing and singing and not seeing; they're seeing as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's just part of the uh, the overall sense experience. And this is also part of the adaptation to becoming a nocturnal creature, right? Okay, so bats are using biosonar to get information about their target, the distance, the direction, and the nature. Um, but when echolocating bats approach a target, they move in actually three phases. The first is a search phase, and it's a call with constant features and long intervals between the calls. And the second is an approach phase. And the last phase is called a feeding buzz. And during a feeding buzz, the bat shortens the duration of its calls and the intervals between them. Um, so what you'll see is that these echolocation calls of bats have two major patterns. And then the first pattern is called a high-duty cycle in which bats separate the pulse and the echo in frequency. And these calls are long, and they're separated by short periods of silence and dominated by a single frequency. And the second pattern is called a low-duty cycle, and bats separate the pulse and the echo in time. And these calls are short and separated by long periods of silence and are not dominated by a single frequency. So already you can see there's a ton of stuff going on here in what seems to be just a a simple emitting emitting of sound. There's some uh, cool research that came out of uh, University of Maryland's Bat Lab, and I love that they have a Bat Lab. Um, Tell me this real quick. In in researching this, do you think there were, were you finding more and more studies about bats that were conducted by German scientists or German labs? I don't know. Yeah, there was a couple of dominant ones. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I wasn't sure. Am I just noticing it more when Germans are studying bats, or are Germans actually studying bats? Well, more? that, and I noticed in Austin, too, there's quite a few oh, researchers. Well, well, of course, they have a huge bat population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. So, anyway, back to the University <laughs> of Maryland's bat lab. Uh, they found uh, that the bats they were studying, that they were uh, they were using their, their echolocation. Uh, to, to find a target, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they were not aiming their guiding uh, waves directly at the target. Instead, they were alternately pointing the sound beam to either side of the target, which uh, the researchers argue is um, a strategy that optimizes the bat's ability to pinpoint the location of a target, but also makes it hard for them to f- detect a target in the first place. Okay, so on either side of the target, that's where they tried to put their focus. Yeah, almost kind of like uh, like hurting an animal. Like, I'm, I'm looking here, I'm looking where you're not to know where you are. But isn't there something about chopping wood, like you don't aim for the center? Or you, there's some sort of zen... Yeah, it's all very uh, zen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then they also have a, a zen neural response, too. Bats can separate the massive amount of echoes returning from their sonar pulses by distinguishing changes in amplitude, this is the intensity of the sound, between different parts of each echo within 1.5 decibels to decide whether the object is a target or just uh, background clutter. And the minute change in amplitude is enough to cause a delay in the bat's neural response to an echo, letting that bat know what's clutter and what's the target. Again, imagine that these um, these creatures are moving through space at 40 miles per hour. They're doing all of this as they're approaching the target. Yeah. And as they continue to, to hone in on it, they, they still are getting data and adjusting accordingly. Wow. Yeah, they're incredible creatures. Um, yeah. Have you, have you seen a horror movie called The Descent? I have not. Okay. Well... 
The Descent, uh, first of all, if, if you like horror movies and you haven't seen The Descent, you should check it out because, in my opinion, one of, one of if not the best horror films to come out in recent decades. But it deals with uh, cave explorers, uh, amateur spelunkers, I guess, uh, who are going down into an unexplored cave, and there they encounter this uh, ghoulish humanoid species that uh, you get the impression that is uh, that has evolved from humans that uh, that took to the caves in some ancient time. So now they're they're these pale, ghastly, blind humanoid creatures that uh, use echolocation to mm-hmm. find prey and to determine where they are in this dark underground environment. So, in in a sense, it's kind of a, the film's kind of an attempt to uh, to understand the mind of the bat and understand the sense realm of the bat because you have these scenes, these frightening scenes of these creatures that'll be very near the, their target, but they can't see them. So they'll they'll be screeching and hollering in these awful tones in order to see the environment around them. That is horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> But echolocation. Echolocation. Um, the, one of the cool things about that Zen neural response, uh, and I was just thinking about that too, even within that nightmare scenario, uh, you do have this, so much chaos, so much clutter going on. And uh, what researchers are saying is that that is that Zen navigation ability. It's almost like bats have a main screen that keeps locked on its target and mm-hmm. is trying to filter all of the, the neural information, the neural response to the echoes. And then it's almost like it has a secondary screen that keeps note of all the surrounding stuff well, behind that. It, it's fascinating because it's it's really doing this. The bat brain in this is doing the same thing the human brain mm-hmm. does. Because, uh, and, and this is something that really becomes obvious in artificial intelligence. When we're trying to develop um, a, com- a computer, develop a robot that can navigate a human environment and interact with humans and not accidentally decapitate them or something. Because the human environment, say a cocktail party, that's an example that's come up in some of these artificial intelligence papers. Imagine a cocktail party. All of the the chaos that's going on around you. Mm-hmm. You know, just if, if you go to some, some sort of social engagement this uh, this week, do think about this. Like there the conversation. There's the conversation you're involved in. There's maybe the conversation that you're eavesdropping on. There are the conversations you're not privy to. There, there's the the movement of people, the mm-hmm. movement of food. There's music. There might be something on a TV in the background. The weather might be doing something out the window. There are pets moving around. It's chaos. And our but our brain has to decide what is important, what is worth focusing on, what is the what is the story, what is the path through this chaos, mm-hmm. and it has to to make a, a small slice of order out of it. So that's what goes on in our brain, and that's what's going on with the bat brain, only with some different pieces. And, and flying through the air at 40 miles yes. an hour, right? <laughs> so it really is Zen navigation uh, so that you don't fixate on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this was astounding, too. This was some uh, information that you sent me about the sound of our breathing oh, being yes. something that bats can actually pick up on and and capitalize on. And of course we're talking about vampire bats here of because course. most bats really don't care what humans are up to certainly on a on a breath level. But the vampire bat uh he or she is interested because that's a meal. That's as good as a cow right there. Uh blood tastes good and if it can land uh, near that human and then crawl up to it and start to uh, open a little <laughs> cut in the uh, the neck say and start uh, lapping away then uh, all the better and yet yeah, they've uh, they've conducted studies that found that they can uh, they can recognize prey by the sound of its breathing and really can can recognize human human breathing the sound of human breathing mm-hmm. better than humans can yeah they did an uh an experiment where they had some i believe it was cow's blood was the reward mm-hmm. and they had some um 
film clips of humans breathing. And so when they matched it up, they got the reward. And then they paired them with the, with the humans who were supposed to, uh, detect the breath patterns. And mm-hmm. humans were kind of awful at it. Yeah. In comparison. That's just not something we're programmed for. No, mm-hmm. no. But it's a, it's a little bit freaky, I guess, because you were thinking about the, the possibility of a vampire bat actually stalking you. And this is what it's using it for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, vampire bats mainly feed on, uh, cattle. Yeah. So we don't have to be too worried about it. But of course, most bats aren't concerned with human blood. They're concerned with insects. And, uh, and th- th- found this really interesting. There was a study from the Max Planck Institute, and they found that uh, bats can cue in on the sound of insect coupling. So in the same way that, uh, say, a Jason Voorhees in yes. Friday the 13th yeah. uh, cannot resist killing teenagers while they're having sex, uh, uh, the, uh, these bats cannot resist the uh, opportunity of two insects having sex because they're they're occupied and they're making a lot more noise than usual. It's the perfect time to zoom in and eat them. It really two is a one. slasher film, yeah. right? Because flies, right, and this is uh, the example that was given, is that flies normally at night aren't very active, so they wouldn't put, uh, put off too many sound waves. But, yes, when they're doing the deed, that is when they are... Um, usually going to be eaten by a bat. So it, it, what I think is fascinating about that is it always boils down to in nature this that, that if you're going to copulate, it can come at really high stakes, you know? I mean, because you mm-hmm. take one second out to do the deed, and all of a sudden you become someone's lunch yeah. or dinner. And certainly you have you have animals that take far less time with the act than others. I mean, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But... Uh, but yeah, if you're if you're an insect and you're out there and you're taking the time to spend a little time with your insect sweetie, just look out at what's flying up behind you. Yeah, I mean you're making these broadband buzzing noises, um, which is great. We understand, uh, but yeah, that is it's going to get you noticed. You know, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about dabbling baby bats. All right, we're back. Babbling baby bats. Like Goo Goo? Yeah, like Goo like Goo Gaga. Like, that's exactly the, the example that uh, was drawn from this. This was uh, this comes from a study from the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg uh, in Germany. And uh, they found that just like human children, bat pups may amuse themselves by essentially babbling nonsense. Uh, I, I listened to an MP3 of it, which I'm not going to play here because it really didn't mean anything to me because it just sounded like bat squeaks. Yeah. But to to uh, an informed ear uh, who listens to a lot of bat squeaks, uh, you, you can tell that this is is out of keeping with uh, with some of the more nuanced bat language that is making up their song. Which is a lot like babies babbling because the idea behind ba- babies babbling is that they're trying out language. They're mm-hmm. trying to piece syllables together. So same idea with these little bat pups. And the reason they know that it's, that it's, a, you know, babbling is because it's out of social context. So they're making this hissing, barking, gurgling or whatever sounds, uh-huh. uh, screeches. And there's no reason for them to be making these, the strange sort of interlocking series of sounds yeah. uh, other than trying out their language. And this I thought was interesting is that um, it has been found that bats and humans actually share a common gene for communication. Oh, wow. Yeah. The gene is called FOXP2. And it's thought that this gene functions in the sensory mo- motor coordination of vocalization since speech and echolocation both involve producing 
um, these complex vocal signals via sophisticated coordination of the mouth and the face. So when you look at, at a bat's face, you really can sort of see that. And if you've ever seen the um, pictures of bats screaming, you can see that they are contorting their face. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's interesting to know that we share that same gene that, that is thought that mm-hmm. helps to coordinate this effort. Well, you know, that's in our previous podcast on bats, we discussed, you know, why in, in many mythologies bats are, there's something creepy about them, there's something evil about them, or, or just something supernatural. And certainly, if you look at a picture of a screaming bat, I wonder to what extent the the uncanny familiarity, yeah, played, uh, you know, to what extent that plays into it. Yeah, especially right. Because yeah, we talked about this before in the last podcast. But you know, if you're a 15th century settler and you mm-hmm. see a vampire uh, bat coming at you, uh, and then you've witnessed it feeding from your livestock, of course you would be horrified. And yes, you might be able to see the the familiar in the unfamiliar. You know, I think uh, the babbling bat that would be a, a great name for a spooky pub. You know. Like preferably oh, yeah. in the middle of nowhere that our our, uh, our our heroes encounter in the dead of night. They're like, oh, look, the, the babbling bat's open. Let's go in there. I feel like you need to say it with an accent, though. Oh, the babbling bat. Yeah, there yeah. you go. I don't know what accent that is. It's something sort go. of Irish that works. <laughs> Here's another uh, interesting uh, bat song study, and this one comes to us from the University of Texas at Austin. So, again, with the, more of that Texas-Germany dichotomy here in bat studies. And uh, they found that like... Um, like a diner ordering a dessert ba- based solely on the um, oohs and ahs of uh, another customer in the At restaurant. At the next table, yeah. they've, they've got the souffle, and they're like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever yeah. eaten in my life. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're like, oh, that sounds like they're having a ball with that dish. I'll have what they're having, right? Okay. Well, you find a similar thing with, uh, with frog-eating bats that learn to eat there's this new and exciting prey by eavesdropping on their neighbors as they eat. <laughs> so, so here we see... A key role that uh, their 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 hearing plays in their ability to learn how to behave. Like whereas uh, as other animals, you have uh, visible observation of what's going on. Oh, this uh, you know the the other uh, marmot here just uh, you know wounded a scorpion, and now he's going to teach me how to play. Or my cat brings me a wounded squirrel, trying to teach me how to hunt. Maybe, but uh, but here it's 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 a sonic world. So they're they're listening, they're hearing the sounds of, of what is an appropriate meal and how to eat it. Well, and there's such a high level of, of um, adaptivity, too, because we we have known in the past that frogs, or excuse me, bats will pick up on certain frequencies of certain frogs and distinguish which ones are poisonous and which ones are not mm-hmm. and go after the ones that are not poisonous. But this is an entirely different thing to, to eavesdrop and then say, oh, okay, that person didn't uh, keel over from their dessert. I think I'm going to try it out. And then we've also uh, found in studies that uh, that bats use their ultrasonic echolocation calls to recognize their own species, which is uh, really interesting, um, which in a way it's pretty straightforward. I mean, one species needs to know how to identify its own kind, mm-hmm. and they live in this world of sound, this world of song, so they need to be able to hear the songs of their fellow bat. Yeah, which we discussed in the last podcast is really important because they are highly social and mm-hmm. they tend to uh, roost with uh, groups of 20 to 40. So they would want to seek out people in their group. Um, and, you know, we're, we're talking about people in their group that they could either be related to or they're just sort of, you know, simpatico with uh, because they actually have relationships with this group to the point where they will go and get them food in case they are sick and they cannot hunt for themselves. Yeah, so they need to know who's on their team, who's who their their family is, really, and and they do that through song, through sound. And then finally, of course, bats do have love songs, 
which of course it's like this, the Barry White of bat songs, right? Oh, like, I can imagine like a big Barry White type bat. It's kind of monstrous, but but also adorable, charm, and, adorable and charming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Barry White himself, you know, he's a big man. He what he lacked in uh, in pure handsomeness, he made up for in just uh, a voice sensual, like honey. Yeah, voice like honey and just just sensual charm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is a, comes from a study from the Department of Biology at Texas A and M, the University of Texas at Austin where the researchers spent three years analyzing thousands of Brazilian free-tailed bats and, uh, and the recordings of them to understand what they were on about. And they determined that the male bats have a very distinguishable syllable and, uh, and, and choice of phrase that they use as love songs to attract females and, in some cases, to tell the other male bats to stand clear. Bat blocking? Yeah, 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 if you will. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Didn't they have syllables that were combined in these specific ways to create types of phrases? Um, and I think they, the phrases were a chirp, a buzz, or a trill. Okay. Which is very interesting. Again, you don't think of bats as having this ability, these syllables that mm-hmm. they could, um, that they could actually use in their language. Um, but I think it's fascinating. And again, this was in at Texas A&M, right? And I believe that there's a ton of study going on of the bats at uh, Congress Avenue Bridge. And if you've never seen any photos before, it's definitely worth Googling. We'll put up some photos, yeah. too. Yeah, possibly a, a YouTube clip of that if I can find one. I'm, I'm sure I can. Yeah, but there are about a million bats living under that bridge. It, it's fascinating to see them in caves, but it's somehow to see them out in, in a man-made structure like that is... Uh, it's wonderfully grotesque because they're just <laughs> covering every inch of it. Wonderfully grotesque. I, I think that's a good way to uh, describe the bats in, in some instances. I mean, they're 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 cer- they certainly can be frightening and weird creatures. But as we've discussed here, with their use of echolocation, their use of sound, and their their really their lives in this world of, of song, uh, that they 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 really there is really a beauty to them that uh, that's easy to miss if you don't. Listen closer, you know? Yeah. And I, I wanted to mention, too, that there's a, a free online tool called iBats ID. And this is actually a, a major boost to helping to conserve bats, particularly in uh, Europe, where there's been quite a decline. Mm-hmm. But um, it helps to uh, actually, in bat populations, figure out which kind of bats are there, what species are there, and um, what sort of numbers they're looking at. So if anybody's interested in that, um, check it out. You know, there was a. Uh, you familiar with the book Sutri by Cormac McCarthy? No. It's one of his uh, early books. That takes place uh, in Knoxville. Uh, fabulous book. But there's a. To a certain extent, it's kind of a, a hayseed story because you have uh, you have the main character Sutri, and then there's this other kind of bumpkin, the Tom Sawyer uh, character, uh, the encounter, and he's always, he always has these schemes. Um, Horgate is his name. And uh, he he hears that uh, someone at the university is studying bats, and then they'll give him, uh, oh, it's something like a nickel. Or I forget the amount of money, some piddling amount of money for every dead bat that is brought in. Of course, the idea here is the professors want people to find dead bats, naturally occurring dead bats, so they can study them and determine what killed them. So, But Horgate decides that uh, this is the way he's going to make it big, is that uh, he, he devises a way to poison the bats, so that he can just get a big bushel load of them that he thinks he's going to haul into the university and just take home just an, an equally large bushel of cash, uh, which, of course, doesn't work because they right. do an autopsy and determine the bat died because uh, it consumed strychnine. See, there you go. There's there's nothing to gain out yeah. of that. And but in case was- anybody's thinking about that, <laughs> if you happen to see a, a 
dead bird or what appears to be a dead, excuse me, bat, uh, do not pick it up. It's probably rabies, which causes uh, paralysis. Yeah. But uh, but Horgate, he did, uh, he, he was gaming the science of bats, though, because the way, in the book, the way he, he figures out how to, uh, how to bait them mm-hmm. is that he puts the poison inside the, a little piece of meat, and then he slingshots it up into the uh, air at night. So oh, it goes after it. See, all right. So. Okay. So there you go. Just a little. Uh, well, see, now I want to slingshot some a piece of ham into the air tonight. All right. Well, uh, let's call the robot over here and see if he has any listener mail for us. All right. This one is from Lizzie. Lizzie writes in and says, "Hello, Robert and Julie. After listening to your podcast, uh, I decided to share this with you." And she's responding to our our sleep podcast, uh, "Sleep No More," that we recently did, which deals with sleep deprivation and uh, sleep replacement drugs. She says, um, and she sends us this uh, website for http colon slash slash sleepyti.me. And she says, it's a sleep calculator. It tells you when you should go to bed in order to wake up at the end of a sleep cycle. A full cycle of sleep takes 90 minutes. And you should have five to six sleep cycles in a night's rest. I was a little skeptical at first when I heard about it and decided over a month I would try it and record how I felt in the mornings after I woke up, how many times I hit snooze, my energy level throughout the day, and my temperament in the mornings. I used it and discovered that I feel best if I have had 7.5 hours or 9 hours. Yeah, 9 hours. That sounds great. Um <laughs> I did discover if I slept 8 or 8.5 hours, I was more likely to hit snooze and record that I was incredibly grumpy. So that's interesting. Huh. It's like a, you'd think there'd be a sweet spot all in the middle there, but not for Liz. Uh, she goes on, I even had a couple of days where I stayed up very late and wound up, wound up only getting around three to four hours of sleep. When I got three hours of sleep, I had more energy for longer than when I uh, had four hours of sleep. But I noted I did turn to an outside source of energy, caffeine, on both of those days. Anyway, it has changed my sleep habits, so I aim for 7.5 hours these days and not 8. I never used to uh, qualify myself as a morning for a person, but I believe that is that, that is changing now. Thanks again for a great podcast, Lizzie. And that was sleepyti.com? Yes, uh, S-L-E-E-P-Y-T-I dot me. Oh, dot me. Okay, got it. And then we heard from Carlin in response to our City Creatures episode. Carlin writes in and says, Great job in this episode. Two points. In regards to a holiday for envy, birthdays are a great example. A group of people gather around uh, the birthday person being showered with gifts while everyone else watches in envy. And this is related to a listener mail we read in that episode. About the seven deadly sins. Yeah, someone said that the seven deadly sins all match up with, uh, with traditional U.S. holidays. Uh, and then he makes a second point here. Carlin does. You mentioned in na- in neighborhoods uh, in bad repair, people would be more likely to walk past someone in need. In the cleaner ones, people take notice. This is similar to my experience working Christmas at Walmart. Uh, when I would start my shift, I worked very hard to clean the toy department. Once the aisles were clean, the parents would not let their child be the first to make a mess. As long as I did a little cleanup throughout the shift, I had a very easy time. So there you go, in yeah. action. Which makes me think... Of those, uh, I assume they still have these, the restaurants where you were encouraged to throw peanut huts on the floor? Yes. Have you dined at these? Uh, a long time ago, yes. <laughs> you, you made a, a wonderful face at that inquiry. Uh, um, I always wonder, it's like, that That sounds like a recipe for disaster, because you're basically telling the, uh, the clientele, the place is a wreck, throw food on the floor. We don't care. It's like that's you're just opening the door then, because, because the whole idea is that if the place is already a wreck, 
we're more inclined to let people abuse that space. Yeah, but you don't see, I mean, you just saw the peanut shells, right? Mm-hmm. You just saw the, the casings. You didn't see, like, beer cans and, like, right, yeah. old shoes. and. So maybe as long as you're uniform and just... I think it's a psychological thing where it's like, you know what? You are allowed to do this one thing that your mother told you never to do, which <laughs> is to, to throw this peanut shell down. And so people are, they feel like they're getting away with something. It's quite exciting. All right. Well, uh, here's one last piece of listener mail, and this is from Stevie. Stevie writes in um, uh, pretty much about the same topic here. It says, I was just listening to your uh, listener mail on the last podcast you did, and the person writing in was connecting the seven deadly sins to holidays. I can see how those those connections can be made. I was also thinking about the question the listener posed about envy and what holiday that would be. What about New Year's? You both were talking about envy being uh, the sin of wanting to obtain and grasping for something you don't have. Isn't that what New Year's resolutions are? Setting a resolution for yourself to do something or obtain something you do not have. Plus, it can lead to envy because by the end of the first month, most people end up breaking their resolutions and giving up on them while envying the results of those who have stuck with their resolutions. Uh, just a thought. I love listening to your podcast and I've learned so much uh, in such a short period of time. Keep the knowledge and insight coming, guys. Well, she makes an interesting case for for New Year's in India. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's worth pondering. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, to a certain extent, I can see there's a certain grasping and saying, "I will, I will do this. I will be this." But it's uh, it's uh, it's it's not completely cut and dry there. So I don't yeah, know. and I, I think it think depends on what your list is. Yeah, you know, if it's uh, like I, I want. One million dollars. Yeah. Or how one thousand lollipops. Yeah, or how you're framing it. Like for instance, if your whole thing is my resolution for the next year is I'm gonna go to yoga because I wanna look how Jill looks. I want yoga butt. Yeah, because I want yoga butt like Jill, whoever Jill is. And then um, Jill clearly has yoga butt. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, but then if you're getting into it like I wanna do yoga because I want to Cultivate. Know, cultivate a calmer outlook on life, yeah. or I, I want to have better flexibility. You know, it, I guess it comes down to just how you're you're viewing your goals. There That's you go. my two cents. All right. All right. So, if you would like to chime in, perhaps you have some thoughts on the seven deadly sins and holidays. Uh, Perhaps you have some thoughts on echolocation and bats, this world of song that they sing all around them. Perhaps you uh, have some thoughts on uh, the Descent movie that I mentioned uh, or its awful sequel. Then you can uh, write into us. You can find us on Tumblr and Facebook where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And if you find us on Twitter, you will find us under the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also send us an email at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.